This is Corolla Digital. Hey, you guys, it's me, Allison. I just wanted to say thank you so much for listening to the show. And if you like what you're hearing, which, come on, let's face it, you do. Make sure to tell a friend. You can find us on iTunes, the app, or my site, AllisonRosen.com. Allison Rosen, Allison Rosen is your new best friend. Allison, Allison, with her good times never end. Allison Rosen, doing the way he gets pants again. Allison Rosen, Allison's your new best friend. Hey everyone. Hi. Hello. It is me, Allison Rosen, and I'm here with comedian, podcast host, all around awesome guy, Paul Gilmartin. Hello. Hi, Allison. It's good. I was trying to th- think of what the, the pronunciation of the show would be if it was an acronym, and it's Arini Biff. Ari in Biff. People, well, thank you. Because people are like, you know that, that spells out Aryan boyfriend, right? And I was like, <laughs> I never put that together. Apparently, that's what a lot of people see when they look at the letters for the I show. I guess it is. Yeah. yeah. I actually kind of wish. So the, the show's Twitter handle is A-R-I-Y-M-B-F. And I kind of wish I hadn't done that because I think that that makes people uh, think I'm into white pride, first of all. But also search that on iTunes. And I think if you search that, that won't pull the show up. That pulls so. up just songs of hate. <laughs> Exactly. And, and fucking. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, and Valkyrie and uh, all sorts of blue-eyed devils and whatnot. I actually know a little bit about that that kind of music. That's a whole separate story, though, and not anything I'm into. Okay. Is there anything creepier to fuck to than Wagner? <laughs> <laughs> that is such a good question. Yeah. It's okay to swear on this, right? Yes. I'm coming right out of the gate. Guns blazing. I feel like Zydeco would be weird, but not in the same way as Wagner. Zydeco would be weird. Zydeco would be a little bit like, hey, can we get serious? We're having sex here. Yeah. I remember one time there was some, I think it was Zydeco music playing, and my friend said, this is what I'd hear all the time if I went crazy. <laughs> like, that's the music yes. in your head when, when the, the screws come yes. off. Um, have you fucked a Wagner before? Uh, I have not. A violin music is the most uh, precious I've ever gotten uh, yeah. while, having, while having sex with my wife. That was in the 90s. Maybe even the 80s. Do you tend to want music on in those moments? No. I can't even remember the last time we had music on. Yeah. I can't either. Normally, it's just uh, yelling at the dogs to get off the bed. (laughs) Do you let them stay in the room? Uh, Yeah, because otherwise they'll paw at the door and that'll be distracting. Right. You were about to say something and then you edited yourself. Exactly. That is exactly what happened. Now you have to share it. Well, what are they doing while you guys are getting it on? Uh, hopefully, they're one of them uh, will bring his food in. And you know like how a person will <laughs> chew with their mouth open? You're like... <laughs> That's the noise he makes when he chews on his food. And the other one is just obsessed with whatever it is that I'm doing. Right. Yeah. That would be the fear. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I know you from... well. An, a, Number of ways, but um, I had you on this show. We did a live show at Nerd Melt, and then, and that was fun. But I felt like because it was live and there were lots of people, and it was you know juggling, keeping a lot of balls in the air and stuff, we didn't really get to like get into the Paul Gilmartin of it all. <laughs> hey, if it's about me, Allison, I'm down. Right, I'm down for it. 
And then there was another time that I interviewed you on a show that was sort of the precursor to my podcast now. With Lynette. Yes. Um, and I think some people might have heard that, but I don't think everyone has heard that. So that, therefore, I felt like it was time to have you back and to really, really get into, as I said before, the Paul Gilmartin of it all. But for people who don't know... But I feel like a lot of my listeners do. But you host the Mental Illness Happy Hour podcast, which is one of my very favorite podcasts. And I feel like it's an important podcast. Um, You are very open about your anxieties and your struggles and things like that, which I think is what really made me feel a a kinship with you. And just I'm just really drawn to people who can speak about that stuff openly. And you invite people onto your show and they talk about that stuff as well. and I just – I find it so inspiring when I listen and it makes me feel less alone. And I've even picked up helpful things like that mantra, uh, which I've, I've mentioned to you before, of uh, – what is it? I, I have, have enough. I do enough. I am enough. Which yeah. sounds so new agey, horseshitty. But when I started saying it like three years ago – I would smirk like the first six months and, and, and then I end it with, uh, I love you, Paul. <laughs> and I would roll my eyes for the first six months of doing it. But when you're – when you've pounded negative feelings about yourself into your head since childhood, it it really helps to undo them, to have something counter to that. And yeah. that's just one of the one of the things that I do that, that kind of helps. And now it doesn't feel so silly when I, when I remember to do it. Um, but yeah. <laughs> well, for me, what I, I really like it because I will sometimes get this. It feels like a giant, like clenching, uh, nervous feeling of, of, of like career envy or of oh, I'm it's not happening enough for me or fast enough or this person got that and I have to do this or I'm just like I'm not enough and I'm not uh, I got like I got to force something and it's it like- just makes me calm down and like just just existing is enough and usually is like the best move in that moment. It really is. And you know, one of the things that I discovered that helps quiet that voice in my head that says everybody is three steps ahead of you. Yeah. The universe is passing you by. You've blown it. You're on the wrong path. Um, the thing that really helps me is to have things in my life that have meaning, that have nothing to do with the material world, um, you know, be it – Having a conversation with somebody like you, you were a great guest on my podcast and I know a lot of people really related to your to your episode because you didn't have anything tragic that you could point to in your in your story. But you as you said, you felt fucked up inside. And I think so many people feel that way and that's one of the reasons why I started the podcast because I didn't have any particular instance that I could point to. Of course, now that shit has come up in the last couple of years, hearing other people's stories and me going, yes, that happened to me too. I now have things that I can kind of point to that maybe are at the root of it. But still, it's it, – you know, I wasn't kidnapped. I wasn't raped. I wasn't right. – you know, I didn't the have trauma a, with a, yeah, a parent who was schizophrenic. Um and I think those episodes are important because I think that's the majority of the population and I think the the place where the, the podcast thrives the most in is in the gray area. And the podcasting format is perfect for that because you can kind of stretch out and you can go over things in a way that is, is detailed and isn't rushed and isn't soundbite oriented. Mm-hmm. And you're able to get people to really open up. I was especially – uh, impressed with the Doug Benson episode because he's someone that I'm I'm friendly with and I know and I feel like like he's someone that I would have thought 
I don't think he would would want to do your podcast. Because when you mm-hmm. reached out to me, you said, I totally understand if it's not your cup of tea, which I got the sense is probably what you usually say to people when you invite them on your I podcast. I do, because when you say, hey, I, I think it'd be perfect for the mental illness happy hour. <laughs> How are you? I had – I forgot that that can be insulting to some people. And I said it to somebody in the parking lot of Whole Foods and they looked at me like, fuck you. <laughs> And so I, I have to remember not everybody wants to talk about their stuff and not everybody is mm-hmm. struggling with stuff. Some people may appear on the outside that they're struggling with stuff, but maybe maybe they're not. And sometimes somebody doesn't Wouldn't even have to – Wouldn't that be the worst combination, the person that appears they're struggling but actually isn't? <laughs> yes, it would be. You'd just keep hitting dead ends in, right. the, in the interview. But I find that 99 percent of the people I know have something that's unresolved, something inside them that they keep mulling over and over again um, – and I think the biggest myth in our society is that stuff will fix you. And I was lucky enough um, to have a TV show for 16 years and to be making decent money and have employment security and a house and a wife and all of that. And I wanted to put a gun in my mouth. So I knew something was wrong. And that was the first step that, that led me to help. My wife encouraged me to go see a shrink. And, and that, that was Dinner and a Movie, the show? Yeah, Dinner and a Movie was the show. And I remember I – remember Thinking, because I would always think the if I could get the next rung on the ladder, then this this agitation inside me is going to settle down, and that's one of the biggest myths. And I kind of knew that it was a bottomless pit when I'd always thought that if I could see my face on a billboard on Sunset Boulevard, then I'd be like, okay, I'm one of those people, you know? <laughs> the billboard I've, people. I've made it. And one year, the show took a billboard out on Sunset Boulevard, and I went and I looked at it, and I went. I have less respect for Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> that is mental illness. That is addiction. You know, that is having no meaning in your life when you yeah. look for those things because it may be exciting for a week or a month, but then you're on to what is the next thing. And when I do the podcast, it brings it brings meaning to my life. And and it I've never made less money than I have the last two years and I've never been more content. I've never had more peace. I've never felt healthier. I mean I've gone through some shit that was really painful but it's all been forward and it's all been full of, full of meaning, even the most painful, confusing stuff. I think people wonder, well, OK, if I am going to – you know, if I pull myself out of this thing where I'm always looking for the next rung on the ladder, thinking that will finally make me feel OK, if I get my meaning elsewhere, what is it that's going to drive me career-wise? The like, universe well, has has ways – and I know that sounds like such a new-agey horse shit. But the universe – when we find stuff that has meaning in our lives, the universe has this weird way of meeting us halfway, of taking care of our needs. One of my friends described it this way. He said – and a lot of people who have gotten sober kind of understand what I'm, I'm talking about and people that have been through therapy. A friend of mine uh, from one of my support groups said – he said people roll in here and they think – Oh, fuck, I got four flat tires. How do I fix these four flat tires? And everybody tells him, work on the carburetor. And you're like, you don't understand. I've got four flat tires. Work on the carburetor. But how the fuck am I going to get anywhere if I can't work on the carburetor? And eventually you get tired of people telling you to work on the carburetor. You work on it. You turn around and the four tires are inflated. That has been my experience and hundreds and hundreds, probably thousands and millions of other people that's been their experience. There's this weird force in the universe that I never used to believe in. But um, 
things just have a way of working out. Um, so what I wanted to ask you before is how often do people not want to do the podcast? Like what's your batting – do people usually want to do it? Um, yes. I'd say probably three-quarters uh, – Maybe even 80 percent of the people that I ask agree to do it. Um, one of the biggest stumbling blocks is um, people live out of town because um, there's so many people I want to interview. Um, but it's not a podcast that I, I want to be in the room with the person. Yeah. You know, it helps to see the expressions on their face and just kind of feel that vibe of, of somebody sitting across from you. Um, so those are the biggest ones. But sometimes I'll get one that hurts my feelings where the person will be like, uh, not a good fit. And, and of course, I immediately go to the place of, oh, you know, what? what is it what, that, that turns them off the name of it? I've had somebody say that. I find the name off-putting. Um, but whatever. This is happy. Happy hour. <laughs> well, do you remember I emailed you somewhat recently and the re- I felt comfortable to email you because we've – talk to each other on podcasts and I feel like we have sort of a no bullshit uh, yeah. relationship. I emailed you because I asked someone to be on my podcast and she turned me down and and I I felt really rege- – like I, my instant feeling was like, oh, I got to talk her into it. Instead of being OK with the fact that she didn't want to do my podcast, still not quite OK with it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean I am but I'm not. Sure. But yeah. Oh, so that makes me feel better that you sometimes feel that way when people say no to you. And, and the person that you were talking about is somebody that I have worked professionally with many times who I've known for 20 years who turned me down the first three times that I, I asked. And and then she had something to promote and agreed to come on it. And I was like, eh, you know, if that's if that's the window that it takes to get her on. Right. And it was a it was a great episode. And I also know that she's a very busy person and and I don't take it I try not to take it personally. You know, that's that's yeah. one of the things that has helped reduce my crazy is to know other people are probably as self obsessed as I am and it probably has nothing to do with me and if it does what they think of me is really none of my business. I try to I try to embrace that. I know it's right that what someone else thinks of you is none of your business. It's hard though. That is a, that is a tough it's one. It's one of the hardest things in the world. Yeah. It really is, but the moments and I find that the 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 more often I can get to that place is when I'm doing things that help me like myself, when I'm doing things that have meaning in my life. So for you what are some of those things? Um Working with other people in my support group, um, especially people that are new to it, uh, taking their phone calls, making phone calls to them, um, listening, uh, sometimes not not even you know trying to fix people's problems, but just helping them feel heard and felt and listened to, because that's been the the thing that's really helped me the most. Uh, you know, that's that's really kind of the core emotional injury that I had as a kid was. Um, that I didn't feel felt. I didn't feel mm-hmm. heard. I, I didn't feel um, understood. And I mistook my mother's lavishing of attention on me as being listened to and cared and felt and heard. And it took me until last year to go, oh, no, I was more kind of an object to her that she used as a, as a reflection of who she is because she doesn't really listen to me. 
You know, I tried to set a boundary with her 24 years ago about grabbing my ass and talking to me like I'm her date. And, and I found myself two years ago, a year and a half ago, having the same boundary issue with her. And, and it suddenly occurred to me, this woman does not hear what she doesn't want to hear. Yeah. And it was like somebody, a, a, a light went on and all of a sudden everything that I'd always made an excuse for, for her in my experience with her made sense. And it was like somebody died. The image I had created of her to survive as a child died. And it was like experience. I would imagine what it feels like when a parent dies and you're a little kid. It felt like somebody scooped my chest out with a bulldozer. I wanted to go into the fetal position. And I went through – this sounds so corny. But I went through the five stages of death and dying. At first, I was in denial that it was. I was like, I'm a baby. I'm making it up. I'm throwing my mom under the bus. Then I was fucking super pissed. I wanted to fly to Chicago and confront her. And then I was bargaining about, you know, well, you know, maybe maybe it's, it's partly this. Maybe it's partly that. And then I got super depressed about it and I tried to numb it with, um, you know, escaping into pornography. And then finally, I'm at a place where I can accept it. I can see that she's she's really just like a five-year-old girl in a in an old woman's body. And I still haven't reconnected with her. Um, but if I do, that's how I'm going to view her. And then I won't expect her to act like an adult. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to ask. I was going to ask if the the new uh, new way you're looking at the situation which has seen it clearly, if that has stuck. And I guess it has because... But it's taken time. Yeah. The first six months were I felt untethered. That's the best word. I felt... I didn't know left from right. I didn't know where the truth was. I didn't trust my integrity for any decision. And I felt like, you know, when you see an astronaut and they're hooked to the capsule and they're floating in space, Mm -hmm. I felt like one of those people, but somebody snipped the cord. Just orbiting. Orbiting. And I wanted to die. I literally wanted to die. Um, but I knew because I'd been in support groups and I was in therapy and I was going to see a psychiatrist, uh, I knew I'm going to get through this. I've gone through other things. I've you know, dealt with alcohol and drug addiction. I, I got through those things. I can get through this. It's just going to be uncomfortable. I'm going to have to be patient and nice to myself. And being nice to myself was the like the core thing. And the first thing that I did to be nice to myself was cut to cut contact with my mom. And that's the hardest thing I ever did. It, it, uh, it's what, what was it that made you – that gave you the realization that she's not hearing you? The first thing was a box I got for Christmas. And every Christmas she sends me this box of – the best way to describe it is a box of shit, a box of stuff she bought for other people, a box of things I've told her that I don't want, some of it wrapped, some of it unwrapped. And every year, I, my wife is like, aren't you going to open that? And it sits like until January and I one day I'll get up the nerve and I'll open it up and it will just, of course, be disappointment and I'll put it on the curb. And one of the things I've learned in, in my support groups is to stay in your body. When you're feeling something uncomfortable instead of escaping into video games or porn or drugs or alcohol or shopping or whatever it is, to – Feel what you're feeling in your body. And I felt sad and I felt angry. And 
And I felt like this woman doesn't hear me. And that was the first little nugget where I went, maybe I'm not making it up. Maybe I'm not hypersensitive. Maybe I'm not a baby. Mm -hmm. And so then I began over the next six months paying attention when on the phone with her, listening to my body. And the other thing I began to felt feel was I began to feel skin crawling is too strong of a word, but I began to think about how I feel when she touches me. And I realized I've never enjoyed a hug from her. It's always felt like I'm there for her. Like it's like she's I'm something she feeds on. And and I've noticed the longer I'm around her in the room, the more excited she becomes and the more tired I become. And trains you. Yeah. And as I began to look at those things, I began to go, you know, and and then I thought about some things that happened in my childhood where I should have been protected, where I wasn't. And, and they were really, really painful. And I just went, she was just in her head about herself. She didn't do these things because she didn't like me or she wanted to hurt me. She just didn't know how to be a fucking parent. But I have to stop making excuses for her and learn how to take care of myself because it's killing me. Yeah. It's killing me. And that was that was the beginning. That box, that Christmas box. That was the that was the first thing. And how did you cut off contact? I called her when I knew she wasn't going to be home and I was supposed to go home for her 84th birthday and help her move into her retirement home. And when all of these kind of repressed memories came up, they they weren't necessarily repressed. They were things that I was aware that happened, but I'd never given them their full weight. And all of a sudden, they came up one day. And some of it was triggered by listening to other people's stories on the podcast, other people's who were guests. And things that I had always explained away. Um, you know, for instance, I was molested by the kid next door. Um, he was like, I don't know, four or five years older than me. And I had never thought that I was molested. And I was interviewing Danielle Koenig. And she was talking about what happened to her. And I went, oh, my God. I was molested. How had you understood it all those years? That that he had just tried to do something with me that I didn't want to really go along with. But, you know, I went along with it for about five minutes and it left me feeling dirty and gross. Mm-hmm. And – but I'd, I'd always thought, oh, there has to be penetration. Right. You know, there has to be um, something yeah. for it to, it to be that. But as I was doing the podcast more and more, I began to realize – that I've been brushing these these things away and when it all came to a, a, a head and um, I finally saw that I was – that I felt like an object around her, this huge well of pain came up and I went to my wife and I said, I need a hug. And I'd always had this fantasy when I was a, a little boy like in first grade that I could go to an older girl on the playground and hug her and she would hold me and I'd be able to cry. And I never knew what it was about. When I got into the therapy, I was like, oh, okay, clearly I wasn't mothered. End of story. But I didn't know what it was that I wanted to say. And my mom had done some stuff that was kind of creepy uh, mm-hmm. as well. Um, never touched my junk, but weird things, you know, like you know, took my temperature rectally till I was eight years old. Oh, wow. And, and I went to my wife and 
I said, I need a hug. And she hugged me and I just started sobbing. And I said, she tricked me. She used me. And I didn't deserve it. I was a good kid. And I I was crying. And my wife said, I've been waiting 20 years for you to say that. My wife saw in the first hour being around my mom what she was doing, how it was affecting me. And that was that was the beginning of me saying, okay, what am I going to do about this? And I felt like, oh, I'm going to be a terrible son if I go, go help her move into her retirement home in three days, but I can't do it. I literally cannot be in the room with this person. And so when she, I knew she wasn't home, I left a message and I said, I don't hate you. I'm not angry with you, um, but I'm exhausted. By our relationship, and I need some time away. And she called back and left a message and said, "I understand." Was that more than you were expecting? It was. Yeah. It was. She's. I. I then reinitiated letters because I figure I can handle that, and even that proved to be too painful. She tried to throw other relatives under the bus, mm-hmm. blame them for my depression. Um, it just kind of – she would started manipulating through the letters and it just would make me sad. Like my wife came home and she's she looks at my face. She goes, oh, you read a letter from your mom. Didn't you? <laughs> and so I just – I haven't written her back in like six months and uh, that's where it is. But it's not on me. Yeah. It's not on me. You know, when it starts to kill you and sap you, you got to stick up for yourself. You got to protect yourself, and that doesn't mean you have to hate the other person. I have tremendous compassion for my mom, but one of the things that I've learned in my support groups is have compassion for others, but not at the expense of compassion for yourself. And that's what I'd been doing. I thought that allowing myself to be drained and treated like an object by her was being nice, and it's not. Mm-hmm. It's not being nice to anybody. Does she play the victim? Yes, absolutely. Somebody yeah. sent me a book called Understanding the Borderline Mother. And I don't know if she's borderline, but she definitely has borderline characteristics. And there's one characteristic in there, uh, one type that's called the martyr. And I think that's really her. She's always paints herself as the victim. And she used to call us martyrs when we were when we were kids. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, kind of your typical projecting. But I don't know what what her deal is. I know she had a terrible childhood and she was abandoned by both of her parents, left to be raised by friends of a family in an alcoholic household. I mean, just tremendously abandoning, but I can't rescue her. I can't change her. That's her, that's her path. Yeah. No one can do that for someone else, which is another really hard thing to accept. Yeah. And and the thing that I realized that I have in common with people who were fucked by a parent who were you know, had these other things happen to them who were beaten is the same message was implanted in us, which is your feelings don't matter. And as I went, did the work in my support groups, I saw that all of my broken coping mechanisms were to try to fix that feeling in me that I don't matter because I really believed in my core that I don't matter. Um, you said that your wife said that she'd been waiting for you to say that for 20 years. Had she ever said anything negative about your mother in all that time? <laughs> yes. Okay. She so can't. she's a saint if she kept that in and that was yeah, her assessment. No, but she, you know, she wouldn't rail about my mom. She would just say, I don't, I, I don't like your mom. And in the beginning, she was like, you have to go, you have to stop seeing your mom for lunch twice a week. You have to stop letting your mom pay for your vacations. You have to stop having her give you money. This was in my mid-20s. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
And I did. And I slowly began to see it. But my wife would keep saying, I don't think you fully dealt with it. I don't think you fully dealt with it. And I would just brush her off and think, ah, she just doesn't like my mom. And, and then, that did, did that create any conflict between you guys ever? It would get on my nerves uh, sometimes because I thought I knew myself. But it's funny. Those around us sometimes know us better than we know ourselves. Yeah. It's also – it's interesting that even when you're not fully conscious of of – sort of what's going on, the things that you're drawn to. And for example, in college, I the uh, we had to take an ID course. That was the name of the class our freshman year at 820. And there were all these different ones you could choose from. And I chose family myths and realities. And I took the whole class just thinking, I don't, I don't know what drew me to it because I thought I had a perfect family. And it's only later that I was like, oh, it, that was the perfect <laughs> class for me to take. Um, also, I can really... It really relate to this thing of of seeing something clearly, realizing that your feelings didn't matter to that person, and then you you know someone might think that there'd be this feeling of liberation, but instead it is feeling like someone died. Yeah, because I think it's that idealized parent that some part of you was or, or all of you was trying to to keep on the pedestal. Once you take that off, it, it's as if you were an orphan. That's exactly it. That's it's exactly so hard. It. I still, I still struggle with that. Yeah. I don't know why. I don't know why I. It's like the choice is see them clearly, and not repeat patterns, but feel alone, or keep them on a pedestal and and just keep banging my head in something. But yes. the older I get, it sort of it doesn't happen as frequently. Yeah. But I do think you know. What is the cost of being an adult and yet still having parents on a pedestal? It's probably, yeah. probably great. Yes, a, a great in a bad way. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, one of the uh, therapists that I, that I saw said, when you're a little kid and you don't have the option of moving and a parent is either neglectful or hurtful or predatory towards you, you have to create a lie in your mind to survive because you're stuck there for the next however many years. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, when my mom would do stuff that felt – had a weird vibe to it. I remember thinking to myself, is – does she have some other – is something else going on here? And immediately brushing it out of my mind and even going so far as to blame myself – for feeling like something was sexually charged and and then blaming myself for yeah. years and saying I'm the dirty one. I'm the the one because women don't do that. And that's one of the biggest lies that I'm hopefully helping dispel is that is that women don't um, cross boundaries with kids. They absolutely do. In fact, for many of them it's because they have access to their children's bodies in a way that um, men don't and they're not thought of as being um, predatory. Predatory, and, and for many of them, I don't even think it's uh, – for some of them, I think it's sexual. For some of them, I think it's about a feeling of power and control that uh, you are mine. Right. And that was one of the things that I asked her to stop doing. That was one of the final straws on my last conversation with her was she would – 
when I pick up the phone, she would just, you know, hello, mom's sweetest, mom's little dove, mom's this and that. And it would, it, I listened to my body and it made me nauseous. And I went, of course, that fits with the whole objectifying thing that I've been coming to. I'm her little thing. And yeah. I've, and I've been trying for 24 years to get her to see me as something other than that. But you can't. You can't make other people see things. They have to discover it themselves. Do you think she has the capacity to? I don't. Um, I think that window closed. Um, there's work you do in certain support groups to see what your part is in things. And she's been in one of those support groups for – I don't know, probably coming up on 30 years and has never done that part, does not want to look at that part. And it's elemental to discovering what the patterns are that you need to change in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it – in fact, she, and this is really fucked up. You're, you're supposed to – when you do do this work, you're supposed to share it with a mentor in the, in the support group. Somebody that you trust, not somebody that you're related to. And she asked me if she did it, could she share it with me? <laughs> and, it, you know, because it involves like things you did sexually, you know, in yeah. your past. And it just made me – when I shared it with my support group, there was a literal gasp. And these are people <laughs> that have had way worse shit, you know. Done right. to them than, than was done to me. But it felt good because it was like, okay, maybe I'm not crazy. Yeah. Maybe I'm not a baby. Maybe I'm not an exaggerator making this up. And the emails that I get from people that listen to the podcast are so beautiful because they're beginning to make the connections that I began to make by hearing other people's stories. And I think that's one of the things that people find comforting about the podcast is we're not the solution. We're, I say it's not the doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. We're there to hold your hand, laugh at inappropriate jokes, and, and just kind of not feel, not feel alone. Because mm-hmm. that, that has been the most healing thing for me is just feeling like somebody else is um, standing there with me and kind of – there's this great group of mom listeners – that become so angry when I share something that my mom did that they circle the wagons around me. And it's so beautiful because it's that it's that feeling I was looking for from that older girl on the playground. And one of them – I don't want her to do this to my mom. But one of the last <laughs> things I shared, this woman said, I want to kick your mom in the cunt. And I just was like, man, it would have been great to – you know have that kind of protection yeah. as a as a kid instead of feeling exploited. Um what what made you decide to do mental illness happy hour and and how did it start? I had gone off my meds in um I don't know like 3 years ago like every other jackass that thinks I'm <laughs> fixed. And I, actually some people are able to get off their meds and God bless them I wish I was one of them. But um But you I, thought you were fixed though and that's I thought I was off. fixed um and so I thought you know, give it a couple of months, and if I feel okay, then I'm in the clear. Did, I did you no- not like being on them? I didn't. I didn't. Um, the ones I'm on now, I'm actually they're they're great and they're really working. But sometimes they'll stop working, or sometimes there's a side effect to them. And I I just don't I don't trust um, corporations mm-hmm. for the most part. I don't 
trust big pharma. And, um, and so I was like I, – and I think about, you know, what if there's an earthquake and I can't get my right. meds? So um, I went off them and I thought after a couple of months, OK, I'm in the clear. But I didn't know sometimes it can take up to five months if I had gone to see my therapist instead of just going off them on my own because <laughs> I knew he was going to tell me. He's, he actually had said um, – when I would mentioned I was thinking about it, I highly discourage you from doing that. And I thought, yeah, yeah, Oh, whatever. what would he know? Yeah, you're a lapdog for big pharma, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and so when it creeped back in at five months of being off them, I thought it was reality. I it thought being de- the depression? depression? I thought I really did need to kill myself. I thought my life really is over. And it was, you know, in that terrible window between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Oh, yeah. And there was this guy in my support group who shared about um, getting into his van and opening up his veins and the blood spurting out of his veins and him looking up to the sky and saying, I'm ready to come home. And I started crying as he, as he said that because that's what I wanted. Mm-hmm. And it sounded great. It sounded like, oh, I can finally sleep. And the next day I went – or sh- shortly after I went, oh my god. That's the depression. That's how insidious it is. And I was meditating a couple of days after that and I was like, that's what I should do the podcast about to help bring that message to people to describe it, to describe the depression because you can't describe it in five minutes. Mm -hmm. And I knew the power of stories from support groups and I thought – We'll talk about mental illness and all the battles in our heads. You know, you don't have mental illness, but you have issues. You have negative thoughts in your head, and let's have it be about everything that every battle we have in our head. And um, and so that's that's what started it. And I didn't know how it was going to go. I thought, you know, this might go down in flames, but I think people might get some comfort from it and hopefully at the very least they'll be they'll find it compelling and entertaining on some level and uh, maybe it'll help them understand a, a friend or a, or a loved one and I do get those emails from people and it's uh, just I, I feel lucky I almost feel like the universe rolled the dice <laughs> and I and I won this great job where I get to have a, a front row seat to connect to other human beings on a level that um that I've wanted my whole life. I thought it was going to come from money and fame and all that other stuff because yeah. those are exciting when that happens. But this is a more subtle kind of excitement that doesn't drain me. It actually energizes me. Who mm. knows? Maybe I'm like my mom. Maybe I'm draining people. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think so. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think podcast listeners – I'm wondering if podcast listeners as a group – tend to be more receptive to the kind of things we're talking about, Absolutely. tend to be more introspective and and self-aware perhaps. I think they're, they're seekers for the most part. Um, I mean I, I think they want to be entertained on a certain level but um, the, the medium is so uh, great as you know for intimacy and rawness and because nobody censors us, they can get it in a way – like I looked – the other thing that drove me to start the podcast was I went – Dr. Phil and people like that and Tony Robbins, I, I've never 
wanted to be connect to that type of person because I can't relate to that. Well, they don't admit vulnerability. Yeah. I mean, I guess, I guess Tony Robbins has a spiel about how he used to be this way and Dr. Phil does too. But I think they're coming from this like I'm going to tell you exactly how to live yeah. thing. Yeah, and I've always gotten comfort from people that go, I don't know how to live. <laughs> Let's yes. crack some jokes about it. Let's tell each other's story and then maybe we'll find it together. Maybe by me talking about it, I'll be able to make some connections. And and I have been. Um, sometimes somebody else's story will unlock something in me. Sometimes something I say will unlock something in them. And it's always interesting. You know, if it wasn't interesting, um, I wouldn't do it because I, I have short attention span. And well, there's I, something so compelling. I think. About hearing someone speak honestly and openly and authentically, and there's not that many places where you hear that. No, there really isn't. And I think everywhere we look in our daily lives, we're getting bullshitted on some level. And I really try to create an hour and a half or two hours where there's a bullshit filter and 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 it's filtered out and – and I think because I share some really embarrassing shit that I've done or has happened to me, it helps my guests feel like, okay, this is a safe place. Um, this person isn't going to turn on me. And if if we're, if he's going to crack a joke, it's going to be a joke where I know he's not making fun of me. He's making fun of how painful it is to of what we've gone through. And that and that's been the that's been the case. People want to open up. Most people yeah. want to open up. They want to feel less alone. They want to know, hey, do you feel fucked up about this? I feel fucked up <laughs> about this. You know, I really connected to you on the on the episode that uh, that that you were on. I, I really, when you left, I was like, I feel like I like I know her. And when I and I think I told you when I saw you at your, at your live show, uh-huh. um, I want to hug you when I see you because I feel like. Um, like you're a friend of mine, even though we don't see each other, right. but maybe twice a year. There's like when you get vulnerable with somebody, uh, I don't know. There's this bond that will be there. I think until either one of you fucks it up or you, or one of you dies, it just kind of feels really good, and that's what that's what feeds me. Thank you. I feel the same. Um, okay, let's take a quick break, and then we'll be back with more Paul Gilmartin. Available now in the comedy album section of iTunes and on AllisonRosen.com. A special episode of Allison Rosen is your new best friend, live from the LA Podcast Festival with guests Greg Proops and Doug Benson. They give you the, they give you the receipt, they give you the receipt, a couple of dollars, two yeah. dimes, a like nickel, and a penny, give you and they change. shove it all at you like you're just supposed to take all that different right. information. Oh. Stick it in your wallet. Pouch. What's their question? This goes in my garbage wallet pocket immediately. <laughs> Thanks, thank you for giving me garbage wallet pocket stuff. <laughs> could you throw it overhand at me and I could try to catch it with my garbage wallet pocket? <laughs> and if you had ever seen my old wallet, it was I had to embrace whatever the next thing was because I feel bad that I shit I feel on this segment. Now. The question is, do you also hate when this happens? Yeah, because you get too many things at once. It's like 
being given a big yeah. basket of stuff or whatever. Like, I'm not ready for it all now. Yeah, it's like you're in porn and suddenly there's four dicks. What are you going to do with right, that? Right, right. It's like money bukkake <laughs> and a receipt. Money bukkake? Did you really just say that? Yeah, I did. <laughs> Subscribe to Allison Rosen as your new best friend on iTunes or go to AllisonRosen.com. Only from Corolla Digital. Allison's your new best friend. Hey, everyone. We are back with Paul Gilmartin. So many things I want to ask you. Um, what Are there things that you do every day to help you feel sane? Mm-hmm. What are they? I can't disclose those. <laughs> uh, I get up in the morning. Um, I pray. Not a religious person. I don't know necessarily what it is that I'm praying to, but I know it's not me. And I ask for help. Um, I say that the serenity prayer, mm-hmm. grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference, because I think it really all boils down yeah. down to that. Um, and I meditate for 20 minutes. I beat my dog. <laughs> I jerk off onto the porch. <laughs> no, I, uh, I meditate. I um, – do you meditate? Is there any like, with a chant or just? I have a mantra. I, I uh, went to somebody that I trusted, somebody I knew from a support group, and she teaches transcendental meditation. So she gives you a mantra, and you're supposed to meditate twice a day. And I used to, but uh, I have somehow I've whittled it down to once a day. Um, <laughs> you're just really so, packing it in. Yeah. So I do that in the morning. Uh, try to do something nice for myself for breakfast. Um, one one of the things that people struggle with whose um, needs weren't met as kids, whatever you want to call it, is you struggle with self-care. Mm-hmm. You know, you struggle sometimes with, you know, you got to make yourself shower. You got to, you know, force yourself to do laundry or, or take the time to make yourself something to eat. And so I try to do that. And that's, that's one of the hardest things in my day because there's this like ticking clock I feel like – you know, yes, you've because I'm a night owl too. So sometimes I'm not up until noon, and it's really easy to believe. Oh, you've truly blown it. You really are behind the eight ball. Um, try to make myself something nice to eat. Then, if somebody from one of my support groups has called me, I return their phone call. Uh, sometimes I'll call one of them because I know that helps me connect. Um, answer emails um, from the podcast. Um, that's that's generally it. I try to find you know something fun to do too, be it woodworking or maybe play some video games. I play hockey three times a week. That's a really um, healthy outlet for me, and actually a really good litmus test of where I'm at um, spiritually. Because I find when I'm getting in fights <laughs> or I'm calling people cocksuckers, or as I was last week, screaming at a guy that he needs therapy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what had he done? It was he was somebody that I had actually played on his team before, and he's he has no uh, like impulse control. Mm. And when it's a really close game, he gets in fights. He throws people into the boards, and there was ten seconds left. He was beating our team, and I was right in front of him, nowhere near the puck. He could have skated around me, and he just brought both his forearms up and leveled me. Wow. And I was like, Sean, what the fuck? Yeah. He's like, fuck you. Because he was all amped up on whatever, adrenaline. 
And I was like, fuck me, fuck you. Get some fucking therapy. <laughs> get something. He just kept yelling, fuck you. And I kept yelling, get some therapy. And literally <laughs> 30 seconds later, we shook hands. And we're like, he's like, I love you, buddy. I was Aww. like, it's all good. It's all good. Um, do you struggle with anger? Because you seem like such a calm, centered, delightful person. Not uh, that anger is the opposite of that, but um, I used to. I used to be filled with rage before I got sober. I would. I, I, my favorite moment to recollect of when it was at the the worst. Um, I was in my twenties and I was in Chicago. Can't even remember where I was going, but I was. It was like in one of those. Areas of downtown where there's tons of pedestrian traffic. And you know how sometimes they'll cross against the light? Like their light will turn red, but because other people are going, they know it's safe. They're Mm -hmm. not going to get run over. And so my light is green and people are still passing in front of me and I'm honking and they're not paying any attention. I'm sure tapping into you don't matter. (laughs) Right. And – And more of them are stepping off the curb and I lean out my window and I was like, what the fuck? Get the fuck out of my way. And out of nowhere, like he came down from a cloud, like a guy out of a 50s sitcom with the the hat Mm -hmm. and the the raincoat and the briefcase. You know, I – he might have even had – Don Draper? (laughs) Looked exactly like him. Might have even had a pipe for all I know. (laughs) His face all of a sudden is like four inches from mine and he goes, son – Get a hold of yourself. It's perfect. And then he was off. It's your guardian 50s dad angel. It your really was. Ward Cleaver. And it was a wake-up call and I went to, to therapy shortly after that because I was like, I am going to kill myself or somebody if I don't get, if I don't get some, some type of help. And I, I think a lot of the anger went away when I, when I got sober. When did you get sober? In 2003. And what were you doing before that? Getting loaded. Um Having arguments with people that weren't there, especially driving, mm-hmm. you know, things that I wanted to say to my wife, you know, because I, I blamed all of my anger on everybody but myself. I couldn't look at myself. It was too painful to see how I treated others. It was much easier to go, you treat me badly. You aren't giving me what I want. No wonder I was frustrated. No wonder people probably thought I was an angry asshole. I wasn't an angry drunk. I was a happy drunk, but... Um, yeah. And, and hockey has always been an, an issue for me. And I actually made a, made a little bit of a, uh, had a little bit of an epiphany about six months ago. Um, a team was beating us and they weren't just beating us. They were killing us like 11 to two and they were running the score up. And I've always had an issue with that. You know, when I'm on the winning end of it, I always say to my teammates, you know, let's be gentlemen here. Let's not rub it in. And these guys were rubbing it in. And and I f- felt this rage come up in me, and one of them was was cherry picking. You know, he was. You know what that is in, in hockey? It's when you're way ahead of the puck, waiting for a breakout pass so you can score again, mm-hmm. so they could make it twelve to two. And I saw this guy cherry picking, and I was like, No, you are not going to fucking score. And so I caught up with him, and I knew I gave him room to the inside. Knowing he would take it so I could level him and I just unloaded, just flattened this guy. And he's like, what did you you – almost like I said to my friend, what the fuck was that for? I said, you're running the score up. Fuck you. You deserved it. And and I apologized to him about 30 seconds afterwards. And one of the things that I learned in my support groups is when you have an outburst like that, 
find someplace quiet afterwards and look inside yourself and say, what was it that, that brought that about? Because I, I, I have to go underneath the – they were running the score up. It's obviously yeah. tapping in. It's just a stupid hockey game. And I went, okay, I felt disrespected. I felt that before. That wasn't it. They can see that we're powerless, that we're weak compared to them. They're exploiting us. And that's when I went, of course, my mom exploited me. That's what it's tapping into. So now when I feel that come up, I go, okay, that's just your little kid worried that he's he doesn't matter, that he's being exploited. And so it sounds corny, but sometimes I'll I'll talk to my little kid and I'll say, It's all right, buddy. You know, it's just a game. It doesn't matter. It feels and it feels cheesy, but mm-hmm. it, it works, you know. It it works. I try to do that too. Do and it does it does feel saying? cheesy. Um usually I just hug the little me mm-hmm. and I say, It's okay. I'm here for you and, and shit like that. And yeah, it does I in therapy I always have I'm kind of I have a problem with any time it's like, is there something you'd like to say to that little girl? You know, like <laughs> you here. just want to roll your like, eyes. I can't. I there might have been, but now that we are putting it in this uh, way, like I feel so self conscious. I actually, um, I'm intrigued by people who don't have that self consciousness come up like that. Anytime it's sort of like any role play or anything. Is there anything you'd like to say? Like, and what would you say? And it's like that instantly. Just like any. If if anger is coming up, any like it just it just dissipates all of a sudden when I'm suddenly self conscious of it. It's easier for me to just 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 talk. I don't know. Are you able to uh, like this throw pillow is so and so? Tell them how you feel. Are you <laughs> able to do always, that? It's always felt corny yeah. to me when I'm doing it in front of a therapist, but I'm. For some reason, I'm able to do it on my own maybe because I know nobody can hear me. Mm -hmm. Even though I know a therapist isn't going to judge me. Fuck, they suggested it. Right. But yeah, it's very – I feel very self-conscious. But I did do some EMDR work with a therapist and uh, there was a a, definitely a parfait layer of anger (laughs) that I I tapped into. Um, One of the things she had me picture was my mom's face because my mom – would one of the things that she would do that would kind of make me shut down is she would drink me in with her eyes, you mm. know, look at me like a like almost like a lover. And yeah. I don't know if the, what her attention was, but that's what it felt like to me. And so my therapist did this EMDR work with me where she's like, okay, picture your mom's face, picture this. And there was no anger until about 10 minutes into doing it. And then I was like, I want to punch her in the fucking teeth. And the, and the therapist was like, "Good, good. You know, <laughs> we're, we're getting, we're getting, <laughs> we're getting somewhere." So you found that, e- and so for people who don't know, EMDR is it's eye movement desensitization so reprocessing or reprogramming, yeah. something like that. Um, and I did it year it, a long time ago, and I didn't. I was uh, in mourning at the time, and I didn't find it to be that helpful for me. But then I heard Dr. Cheryl. Air it on Dr. Drew's podcast talking about it. And all of a sudden I was very interested in it again and feeling like, oh, maybe I should give it another shot or at least be more open to it as a as an effective tool. Did you you found it helpful? I did. Um I didn't stick with that therapist for much longer because I had some issues with her being really scattered and unprepared and not remembering what we had covered before. Oh. So I left her. Um but 
you know, one of the things they tell you is after you do a session, you're going to – because your brain is rewiring itself, you'll often feel very exhausted. And I knew it was working because I would have gotten up at noon, done it at 1, and I would go home at 2 and sleep until 5. It mm-hmm. was like that exhausting. So I felt like – I felt like it helped. What what were the things that you would focus on in EMDR? It was so long ago that I am having trouble remembering specifically. Well, I actually know. It was in the 80s and you would focus on your shoulder pads not being big enough. Yeah, leg warmers. <laughs> I was like, I have this can of shoulder pads. I can't get the thing open. <laughs> um, well, actually, one thing I remember, um, and this was not about the, the grieving or the mourning. In college, I was with four of us. When, so I had very overprotective parents uh, and I was I was always raised with this don't go to a gas station late at night. It's not safe to go to a gas station late at night. So – and also don't ever go to a pier at night. Bad shit happens in both places. And that night – I've seen Kojak. Yes. That night we walked along a pier but there was a group of us. Um, so that already that was me like not doing what my parents – said I should do but and then we went to a gas station late at night and my friend and I were in the back seat uh, and another friend was pumping gas and all of a sudden I heard this thud and this big guy with a meat cleaver had thrown him up against the car and said give me your fucking wallet and so he you know gave gave him the wallet or whatever and then and I was sitting in back and I made eye I had like crazy eyes mm-hmm. and I made eye contact with him and then um I don't know who – there were three of us in the car. I don't know who said it, but someone was like, he's going to come in the car. He's going to come in the car. And it was like lock the doors. And I just remember like very slowly trying to get my hand onto the lock uh, but but convinced that he was going to come in the car and just dice us all up with, with the giant meat cleaver. He didn't. He ran off. But after that, I was really traumatized. God, how um, could you not be? Yeah, I mean I remember – scaring the shit out of me. It was pretty awful. Uh, although, you know, thankfully none of us were hurt, but it was straight out of the, you know, worst case scenario, Rosen handbook. If you're, if, yeah, if your parent, if you had seen that like in an ad, you would go, who's the asshole that made that up? Yeah. Nobody attacks somebody with a meat cleaver right. at a gas station. Right. right. It's sort of like another weird thing. Uh, we'd always been warned about how if you about how dangerous piercing your ears can be and especially like piercing you know parts other than the lobe because uh, you can get a whopping ear infection and have to get a piece of your ear cut off my dad's a doctor that's what he would always say you get a wha- quote whopping ear infection have to get a piece of your ear cut off so my sister who was a little more experimental with like the the piercings and whatnot pierced the upper part of her ear and got the whopping infection and my dad had a heart attack and so he was in the hospital at the time and uh, we went – I remember taking her, her to another doctor to take a look at it and he – she she ended up being fine. He But he gave her Cipro and he said if this doesn't – you know, because her ear was like – she had like this big, like big kind of bubble oh. formed. Uh, if this doesn't clear it up, we might have to <laughs> remove a piece oh. of your ear. And he was like – and it's, it's very stupid. He like really shamed her, which pissed mm. me off for piercing your ear there. Anyway, that's a separate point though. It's just weird when these things that you think it are is. total bullshit come, become true. Then it makes you – or it made me feel like, 
oh, my God, I should be listening to everything they say. So I remember getting back to the dorm room that night and, like, I had to go to the bathroom and, you know, peering out of my dorm room and looking both ways before I even left and just feeling really shaken up and thinking that I was going to see the guy everywhere, seeing people who looked like him and wondering if that was him. And um, always being afraid to go to any gas station after that, even in the daytime, um, just really – I remember, you know, I remember being in L.A., which at that point, it's like all of L.A. is unsafe and sitting in the car while my, you know, in a parking lot and almost shaking. I was so scared. I was just just scared constantly. So I think some of the EMDR was was working on that. Um, And I I don't have that fear anymore, uh, but I think that's just time and and other therapy and stuff, because this at that point, this was like 1996. Five or ninety six, a long be, time ago. You'd be amazed how many people how the, how long their fears stay with them if they don't process it. And that's one of the things that I really stress on the podcast is you got to talk about it with somebody. And we have surveys on the show. There's like I don't know nine different surveys on the website. Uh, the website's mentalpod.com, and there's like nine different surveys people can take. And one of the most popular ones is called Shame and Secrets Survey, and people let go of their deepest, darkest secrets and shames, and and also their sexual fantasies in it. And I have learned so much about the relationship between people's fears. Their shames, their traumas, and their sexuality. It's like they are so closely linked and people's people's traumas are it, – it's incredible how much it imprints our future behavior, especially yeah. if it's not dealt with. Yeah. Um, I think we should do some Just Me or Everyone except – no, you can play. What I was going to say is except there was something I was going to ask, but I forget it. So let's play the song and it'll, it'll come to me in a moment where I can't say it. <laughs> Sometimes I ponder on something I have thought or done. Is it just me or everyone? Oh, I know what I was going to ask. Um, you refer to the support groups you go to. Do you ever name what they are or do you prefer not to? Um. I, I prefer not to because there's there's so many different support groups that people can go to and it's not that I'm I'm not embarrassed at all about the support groups that I go to but I don't want to be considered a spokesperson right. for those support support right. groups and so that's that's why but they you know they have to do to do with addiction and trauma and struggling with intimacy okay all right Kitten says, I'm always afraid I'm going to accidentally say I love you to my boss or coworker <laughs> when I leave the office for the night. Um, I love that. I actually ha- – I worked with someone who was a sports reporter and I don't know I don't know who it was he was interviewing but he used to tell this story. Of, it was like some big football player or something and he ended the interview with nighty night because <laughs> he had kids <laughs> and that's what he would say to them. So – I have done that before. I have said I can't remember who it was, but I've I've done that before. Yeah, that's why I just like I love you is just sort of what I say on the podcast. Just I just want to make it the thing that we all say, thus robbing it of its meaning and making <laughs> making it completely meaningless. Boinkity says I keep a bottle of champagne in my fridge for unexpected reasons for celebration. I've had the same bottle for seven years. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Even though I don't drink anymore, um, yeah, we. We have one. Yeah, we do too. Uh, Megan says, I love flight layovers, mild to moderate length only, of course. I do too. This was 
Well, love is a little strong. But I had this realization, which is I would rather break up a nonstop flight with a stop. I'm not one of these people who's like, I would like to sit on one plane for 12 hours to make or, or 14 hours or whatever, or even six. Although, actually, I tend, to, if it's like a flight to New York, I will mm. get a nonstop. But I don't really mind the layover. You? Uh, it depends on the airport. I would always rather have a nonstop flight. But if there is a layover, there's um, a few airports that I'm actually, I get a little excited that, you know, like Denver is a great airport. There's all kinds of good stuff and it's laid out well. If it's a layover at Dallas-Fort Worth, I'm pissed. Dallas-Fort Worth is where it's always like, it's it's really far from where, it's like wherever hor- you horseshoe are to shaped, where you have to go. Yeah. And I always seem to be on one end of the right. horseshoe and it's on the other one and I've got 20 minutes. It's, so there's so many if, times I've sprinted through that, just sweat pouring down yeah. my face and barely made it. So even if you were going to be flying to somewhere really far away, like a 20-hour flight, mm-hmm. France, I don't know if that's 20 or 16, you would rather go nonstop. Yeah, we did. Uh, the show uh, went to uh, Italy. A while back, and so we had a, a flight from uh, L.A. to Germany, I think it was, and um, that was nonstop. I think it was from from that, but it was it was a long, long flight, and uh, no, especially because we had the lie flat beds. Mm-hmm. I, oh wow! I loved it. I was like, I got my own TV. I can oh, sleep when I want. Oh, if I had all I that, want. I would just, I would never want to get off. But I, I wouldn't even if I was in coach and I and I wasn't able to to lie down. I'm not going to be able to sleep at a layover, so it's just going to it's just yeah. going to lengthen it. Yeah. Do you miss dinner in a movie at all? I miss the people, but I don't miss um, the the part of it. I I actually about a year or so into being on TV, I realized I don't really like being on. I don't like the pressure of being mm-hmm. on TV. And then you did it for 15 more years. For 15 more <laughs> years. Um, I don't like all the all the small talk um, between the takes. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like it with the with the cast and stuff, but there's so many people that like you encounter, you know, the the clients with their products, and I'm I I always get kind of I don't know anxious with yeah. small talk yes. with, with 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 somebody where I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing, and by the time I get back to my hotel room, I'm just fucking exhausted. Yeah. Um, it was a nice paycheck and I felt really lucky to have it because I, I knew it was a great job. I just – I think I realized that I would rather be in a less pressured thing. And But doing the podcast, I don't feel it at all. I want to do the podcast the rest of my life. And you felt more pressure doing TV than performing live in a comedy club? Yeah, because uh, Dinner in a Movie was mostly um, improvised and – so often care desperately what other people think of me. Um, you can't take back things you've improvised and yeah. you, there's not really time to sit and hone it. You got to move on to the next segment and there was many times. You get used to as a stand-up comedian honing a bit, finding the perfect word and when you're improvising, a lot of times you'll botch something. You'll you'll make some grievous uh, comedy mistake that then I would beat myself up mm-hmm. for. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but it's interesting for me. I performing live that feels like, especially alone, feels like more pressure than uh, like live TV or something like that. Yeah. So it's just different, different. Uh, well, with- pressure because for me, I am more comfortable. I don't want to have to hone something that mm-hmm. is the ugh. 
<laughs> I'd rather just let it go. It's hard when you're first when you're first starting out because you don't if you're not on a stage three times a week, it's it is hard to hone stuff. But when you are doing stand up professionally, the amount of work to do to keep your act going becomes less and less as you build up more and more honed yeah, material. Right. So you can get up there having not been on stage for six months and, you know, have, that, a, de- have a decent show. That makes sense. Yeah. In the beginning, it's it's pretty overwhelming. Lloyd Banks says, I wonder what civilization would be like if all of one profession was wiped off Earth. Engineers, manufacturers, writers, etc. Oh, I haven't thought about that, but that's, now I will. That's pretty deep. Yeah. I'm sure the obvious one is everybody would ask for lawyers to, right. to be wiped off the Earth. But then people would take advantage and then we'd yeah. say, God, it would be great if there was somebody that could – you could Resurrect hire them. Yeah. It would keep people from fucking you. <laughs> <laughs> Megan Daniels says, if I chew on ice too much, I start to slur my words like I'm drunk. Yes, I think that's your mouth just getting too cold. That's an interesting one. I've never heard of that. But I have heard that if you chew ice, you're sexually frustrated. I've heard that too, although I haven't thought about that or heard that in so long. Yeah. But I remember that that used to be the thing. Yeah, especially if you if you also have a dick in your mouth. <laughs> Which is not fun. Oh, maybe it would be fun for the it depends the guy how, with the dick. Yeah, it depends how vigorously you're chewing. Yeah, and how cold the ice is. Mike McKeegan says, "I buy something, I can't take. Uh, oh, sorry. Whenever I buy something, I can't take the first item on the shelf or in the cooler. I reach for the back. It's, never know who to. Oh, yeah, I, I do that because it's colder. That's why I take it from the back, and you know the expiration date's probably later. Right. Well, I just don't take the first one because I feel like, oh, there's probably something wrong with it or it's just been squished. Mm. It's funny. That's a good one. Uh, James Wilson says, the food on the kids' menu is usually more attractive than what's on the main menu. Only sometimes for me. I don't know if I've ever ordered off a a kids' menu because I usually want a huge portion. Um, But the guy that did the – Claude Mann who did the food for dinner in a movie um, would always order off off the kids' menu. What would he order? Do you remember? Salmon. They did not have salmon on the kids' yeah. menu. They yeah. did? Yeah. I, I'm almost positive they did. Yeah. Because it was a smaller portion and, and like one third of what it was on the yeah. regular price menu. Huh. Lauren says, just me, store dressing room light is much better for picking my face than home bathroom. (laughs) Yes. What is that kind of harsh light that's perfect for any sort of face picking or just – seeing things clearly and i i went on a quest to have a good mirror and and good light in the place i live now we have the good mirror we don't have the good light in fact i went insane the other it's a ridiculous story but uh my hair dryer started sucking up my hair and it was a hair dryer I didn't use often hence the sucking of my hair and so then i'm like <gasps> and i started to turn it off and then i turned it higher and then i went to turn it off again and then i turned it back on low so at this point a lot of my hair was caught in the hair dryer um, <clears throat> I wanted to call uh, Daniel, my fiance, to ask him if there's – I didn't, but I had this fantasy of calling him to ask if there's any way he could come home from work to help me <clears throat> remove the hair dryer from my hair because I so also – So your, your hair was literally – even if you was, turned it off, it was wrapped up yes, in there? Yes, it was wrapped around the fan. Oh, no. And I had to hold it. I had to have my hand up next to the hair dryer in my hair because if I let go, it, the weight of the hair dryer would have you know pulled my hair out. So I was stuck, and then I, I was so I was like, maybe I'll just you know, do am I going to have to cut my hair out? How much of my hair is in there? And then I was like, I'm not. 
I'm not going to do that. I'm going to get a screwdriver. I'm going to dismantle the hairdryer. So then I was trying to like in the mirror unscrew the little screws. Which Please whole... tell me you unplugged it. Yes. I, oh, yeah. <laughs> that was the first thing I did because I had to get the screwdriver. So I had to carry yeah. it with me. You know, um, The whole righty-tighty, lefty-loosey thing in a mirror is very difficult. But I actually managed to get the screws out. And then I still couldn't open the hairdryer. So I just ended up cutting the hairs out. But what – oh, I know. The way I started talking about this is – so now there's a chunk of my hair in the hairdryer. And I'm, I've been trying to see how much hair is in there. And I can't find good enough light. And it's driving me insane. That's I want, what all that was. I wish you would have taken a picture of you with the hairdryer in one hand next to your ear and the phone in the other. I thought of that. I thought this is a real moment to take a photo. But I was I was like trying to talk myself down from panicking. The whole mm-hmm. thing had this very panicky, shaky feel. Well, I think because I was naked as well. That's how I like to put my hair. Um, so An even yeah. better photo. I, <laughs> I know. <laughs> there was actually a moment then when I got – the scissors out because I was like, I'm just going to cut a couple hairs to see how short we're talking. And then they were these little manicure scissors and they got stuck on my hand. And I didn't really, I had to use the other like hand a, to pry them off. It's it like was a awful. Peter Sellers bit. I know, but I couldn't appreciate it. Oh, that's but hilarious. Yeah, that is hilarious. That is literally out of a comedy movie. What that's I so never great. did was, and what I wanted to do, but I just, I couldn't even handle technology at that moment was sit down and Google how do I get my hair out of the hairdryer because I'm sure that this has happened to someone. And then you would have knocked your Coke over into your laptop. (laughs) Right. Uh, Brandon Keating says, coffee is far more satisfying during the winter months than it is in the summer. Yes. Really? Absolutely. I find it satisfying year-round. Occasionally I'll go through a phase where I I just kind of lose my taste for it, but in general I'm – I'm into I coffee. Like, I feel like that's more true. It's true everywhere, but it's more true for someone who's lived in cold weather. Absolutely. Or who is currently living in cold yes, weather. Yes. I think you're right. Have you ever been in an environment where it's below zero? Yeah. Uh, well, I lived in New York and that would oh, okay. get below zero. Oh, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yes. But some people switch to iced in the summer. Iced coffee? Yeah. <sighs> no, not for you? <sighs> Gary, iced coffee? Nah. Not, you know, whatever. Take it or leave it. I'm not, you're not going to find me going out of my way to get it very often. Right. Some people drink iced coffee in the winter. It takes all kinds. All right. Paul Martin, thank you so much for doing my show. This has been delightful. Thank you, um, Allison. Let's tell everyone where they can go to find you. On Twitter. It's uh, at MentalPod. And uh, the website is MentalPod. Uh, dot com m e n t a l p o d and uh, you can find it on iTunes if you just do a search for mental illness happy hour uh, and make sure to click on the logo when it comes up that way you'll get the most recent episodes otherwise you just get the ones that are that are most popular and I think that's about but go to the website there's a forum there with all different kinds of um, topics that that there's a lot of people are involved in the forum and there's a lot of help and um, feeling connected to people. If you think you're like the one that has the issue and nobody else does, go to go to the forum and take one of the surveys. It helps me get to get to know people better. Have you ever taken any of the I surveys? I haven't yet. Maybe I should go home and do that. You should. I would. Yeah, I would advise my listeners to to check out Paul's podcast because I think that if you uh, enjoy this show, which you do, if you're still listening, and if you're one of the people who stopped listening, well, <laughs> you can't hear me. But hey, fuck you. Um, hey, and you hey, can. Hey, go. 
fuck yourself. Thank you. <laughs> and you can also see how other people filled their surveys out. And thousands and thousands of people have taken these surveys. The Shame and Secret survey, I think 4,000 people have taken it. So it's addicting to, to hear people's deepest, darkest secrets and fantasies in this thing. So I'm going to do it. Everyone, let's all do that. Let's all do that. And then have your listeners try to guess which one is yours. Yes. That will be fun. To give them uh, – they're, they're numbered mm-hmm. um, and give them a range that your survey falls between. OK. <laughs> and tell me because I want to try to find which one is yours. It's OK. <laughs> this has gone from I'm definitely going to to I'm saying I'm going to but I, I'm going to have to check it out first. But I probably will. Or take one that, that's less in, in, uh, imposing than the shame and secrets. OK. There's the one called I shouldn't feel this way. Oh, I like that. Do that one. All right. Yeah. But who knows? Maybe I'll surprise everyone and do all of them. That would be – there's a body shame one. Oh, there's, I could definitely do that one. There's um, happy moments, which is a really sweet one we pepper throughout the show. That sounds sweet. Yeah. Okay. Um, Thank oh, you, Oh, important question. Sure. What do you think is – I haven't asked this for a while. It's time for it to have a comeback. What is the cutest? Duckling, puppy, or baby? Puppy. Love puppies. I, I was saying duckling for a while. I, I still believe duckling, but a cute puppy. There's no right cute. answer here. Oh, no. There's a right answer. Yeah, there is. Well, it's puppy. <laughs> but, I mean, All right. I want to say duckling. And if you're going to buy something on Amazon, which you are because they have everything, why not click through the banner on my website, alisonrosen.com? It does not cost you anything extra, but it does help the show. Also, that hilarious and warm and witty and wonderful thing you heard a moment ago hey 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 go fuck yourself is available as a ringtone <laughs> you need this you need it for your text you need it for your phone calls you need it just to listen to and to remind yourself that uh people need to fuck themselves <laughs> i'm just making this up on the fly you have you, i like it you have no idea it sounds That's like why a podcasting scripted. is awesome <laughs> You can get that by searching, hey, go fuck yourself on your iTunes, on your iPhone, excuse me, in the uh, iTunes store. And you can follow me on Twitter at Allison Rosen. You can follow Gary at G. Patrick Smith. You can follow the show's Twitter feed at A-R-I-Y-M-B-F. You can follow Paul. He already told you where to find him. Um, thank you so much for listening. And thank you again for doing the show. Thank you, this Allison. great. I love you guys. Bye. Hey, do you know about the Allison Rosen Show?
This is Corolla Digital.